Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of The In Between. I'm your host, Naomi Loud, and boy, do I have a treat for you this season. Um, I felt like it needed a lot more of an intro than my usual uh, seasons because this will be a series and not just standalone episodes like I've done in the, in the, in the past, basically. So for those who follow me on Instagram... I've posted an IGTV video about just this and the the sort of the the origin story of uh, how this came about. Um, I will be giving a little bit of an intro here too for those who don't follow me on Instagram. So you can just skip ahead if you've already heard this. So basically, for people who've been following me for quite, quite a while or even on this podcast, I've mentioned quite a few times that I've written a memoir. I wrote this memoir um, when I was 27 and then finished it when I was about 31. Um, There's a lot more to this and I think that I will be talking about the story more uh, in future episodes, but a a lot happened in between me beginning that memoir and then me finishing it. And so when I did finish it last year, basically, uh... It, it, would al- it was always my plan to publish it. And then I started going through the process of traditional publishing and looking for an agent and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, my, my, my intuition was like, hey, you know what? I think you that's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, really? That's not what I'm supposed to do? I wrote this whole book and now I don't want to publish it. And so I was like, okay. I'm just going to focus on something else now because, you know, what else am I going to do? Just linger on this feeling of like, I made this thing and now no one's ever going to see it. And so I just trust, I just trusted that, you know, I wasn't going to delete or anything, but a lot of it also had to do with me being very, very different from the person in the book and also the person who wrote the book. Um, And it felt like I needed more context. The book needed more context. And because you can read this book as a standalone story, but because of what I've uncovered while writing this book, I felt like there, there, there was a book within the book within the book, if that makes sense. Very meta, you know. And then obviously c- cancer season came, came along and um, I had this idea that really inspired me of sharing this memoir on the podcast instead of written form. So this will be a series of me reading to you my memoir, but it's not just that. What I really want to do also is that I had the idea of looking up uh, a few key dates, especially at the very beginning of uh, this story. So this this story spans from me uh, turning 20 and then up to 24, basically. And there's a lot, there's a lot that goes down, to put it lightly. Um, and I, I don't want to divulge uh, a lot, but uh, it's definitely, uh, it, I find that it's quite a peculiar story, especially at the beginning, um, but it involves someone else and involves my ex, obviously. So 
so yeah like all the names have been changed and you know he's it's he no one's gonna know who he is and you know sucks to be him anyway so because some people who follow me actually know him personally but um I there's nothing in the memoir that's a lie and I made damn sure of that (laughs) so that being said um I looked up a few key dates of the of us meeting and uh and you'll see a a few other things and um and I noticed that the astrology of it was insane uh I was going through once in a lifetime like transits more than one actually and uh it just sort of made everything more like it was like an aha moment I was like oh that's why all of this was so intense (laughs) oh so this is what I want to do is to sort of um you know read excerpts of the book uh to begin with and then um finish the episode with me unpacking the astrology and sort of giving context uh alongside the story and if in some episodes there's not a lot of astrology to talk about I also um want to unpack a few things that have been going on because the thing about this book is when I when I was 20 to 24 there was a lot of unanswered questions in my life things that I was questioning that did not make sense and I didn't have the answer so in the book I chose not to answer those questions but I feel like they and I think that's why I needed more control over this story because I feel like there needs to be an answer there needs to be explanations behind uh, some of my behavior because if you have followed me and you know me by now you know that that's what I like to do. I like to use myself as an example and then unpack very um, universal emotional behaviors and sentiments and feelings so that we can all sort of resonate with it, you know? This story is not for me anymore. It's not me being like, please listen to my story. It's like, I want this to be for us. I want to open a dialogue. I want to invite a conversation, you know? So I invite questions or comments or anything because I'd love to just use this story as a stepping stone to talk about all of the 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 things that we don't tend to talk about that much. And unfortunately, that includes, you know, violence and uh and sexual assault and and you know, very not touchy subject, but touchy for some. So without further ado, this is episode one, The Coldest Winter. The ocean's quiet tonight. It always is when the sun sets. Beautiful silence. The water laps against the boat, and we lower our voices, hushed as not to disturb the ecosystem surrounding us. I gear up in silence and pay special attention to the sounds around me as I assemble my gear touch by touch, guided by memory. Engulfed by darkness, everything feels more ritual than routine. I double-check my dive torch, turning it on and off, on and off. When the dive master gives me the okay to jump, I leap forward and fall into the black velvet below. 
As I wait for the others to jump, I float. The water's so dark I can barely discern my own submerged body. I drag my hand through the water. The bioluminescence created by microscopic creatures light up the sea like shooting stars. It's beautiful as it is awesome. When my dive leader gives us the okay, we begin our descent. As we sink to the bottom of the ocean, it's as if I'm being swallowed up whole, but the sensation only lasts a few seconds. My eyes grow accustomed to the environment and safely, I reach the bottom alongside the others. It's not only darkness that makes the ocean look different at night. The corals spawn like large blooming flowers. Their polyps flow in the current, back and forth, fertilizing the water with every sway. As I swim, I observe large crabs traveling in the open, scurrying along the sand looking for that night's catch. After half an hour, I grow cold, and as my body starts to shiver, I slowly lose interest. I choose to follow divers with better torches than mine, and count the minutes until I can ascend. When we finally pop up on the surface, I roll on my back and paddle with my fins towards the boat. The full moon hangs low, the bright reflection rippling in the waves. The sky is shimmering with clusters of stars so tight it's hard to distinguish one star from another. They expand like a dome around me. The only audible sound I can discern is of my own body traveling through the water. I take a moment and pause. I float in complete stillness as I am embraced by the universe from the stars to the sea. But it's a fleeting moment. It escapes me as soon as I begin to climb out the water. The darkness emanating from within me coats my skin like tar as my body emerges from the waves. It's summer 2007 and I'm huddled in the corner of the dark kitchen, the harsh glare of the computer lighting up my face as I browse the internet for volunteer programs to apply to. I'm about to turn 19 and I should have graduated college already, but I still have one semester to go before graduating in the fall. School hasn't been my priority, partying has, so I chose a lighter course load to optimize my binge drinking. But now, I'm over it. I'm bored to death of the same people at the same bars. Nothing ever changes and I want out. It's well after midnight when I finally discover what I'm looking for. I can't even remember what keyword combo I typed into Google to get me there. But here I am. I've landed on a British website, an organization called Green Force, where they offer volunteer programs around the world. It beckons me. Become a scuba diver instructor in Thailand, it says. My heart speeds up as I lean closer to the screen and swallow hard. Scuba diving? I don't even know if I like scuba diving, let alone move across the world to become one. But as soon as I read it, I know this is it. I know I've just discovered something big. The organization is partnered with a dive shop in Pattaya, Thailand, where they offer classes from what they call zero to hero. They train you from total newbie up to instructor. It says the internship takes six months minimum to complete. Fine by me. The longer, the better. Unfortunately, the program isn't cheap, especially when I convert it from British pounds to Canadian dollars. But it does offer everything I need, and more importantly, it offers what I desperately want. Freedom on a silver platter. Added bonus, I would be far, far away from this shithole. For the next two weeks, I deliberate, and every day I visit their website, memorizing what my life could eventually become if I just took the leap. After carefully calculating how much money I would need compared to my minimum wage retail job, 
I finally arrive at a plausible deadline. It would take me a year and a half to save up. Maybe this could discourage some, but for me, this is the fire I need to stay alive. I finally have a goal. I finally have a way out. When I tell my father of my plan, he takes it in stride, but warns me. Not about the program, but my timeline. A year, he says? Do you realize how many things can happen between then and now? I scoff and roll my eyes. Dad, please, nothing ever happens to me. Why would this year be any different? Seven months has passed since I began counting down the days till my eventual escape. I'm now less than a year away. Since my graduation in January, I've been working full-time. Nothing else matters but working overtime and saving for my brand new life. A few days a week, I visit the dive shop's homepage to remember all the reasons why. I'm not currently happy, but at least I'm satisfied. I still live at home with my father. It's been just us two for a while now. My older brother, always gone or living with his girlfriend. We've been living in the same apartment for over a year now, the closest thing to stability I've had in years. But by the time my father walks into the kitchen, I could tell this was all but a fleeting feeling. He crosses his arms over his chest and looks at me. We're moving, he says bluntly. I'm shocked, but not surprised. My father has an extensive track record of moving in with his new girlfriends, always after only a few months of dating and always convinced it will work out this time, dragging us all down along with him. Dad, please don't do this again. He scoffs as he shifts his weight from one foot to the other. He tells me that he's allowed to think about his own happiness and that this is happening whether I like it or not. Naomi, you're 19, he says. If you're not happy with how I do things, then you can find your own place. In a way, he's right. I should have left when I was 18, but I have a new life to save up for, and every cent is dedicated towards making it possible. Defeated, I lock myself in my room and call my sister crying. The same week, she drives down from Montreal and takes me out for lunch. My sister's eight years older than me, and everything she does impresses me. We sit at the bar, and she introduces me to Canadian Club on the rocks with a splash of ginger ale. I feel so damn fancy. Over lunch, we devise a plan for me to get the hell out of town. Look, she says, her eyes shining, you always said the only thing stopping you from moving to Montreal was school. Now you've graduated, you have no excuse. She takes a sip of her drink, pleased with herself. She knows, and I know, she's right. But what about my trip to Thailand? I can't afford to move to Montreal and pay my own bills while I'm saving for all of this. She waves me off. I'll take care of that. Just promise you'll move in with me. Deal? Resolved? I smile and then hug her. Okay, I promise. Three weeks later, I've quit my retail job and packed up all my stuff in my sister's boyfriend's pickup truck. We haul everything I own, which is very little, and head to Montreal. This is my 12th move since I've left my childhood home when I was 8 years old. I hate to admit it, but my father was right. A lot can happen in a year. I've been living with my sister for three months now, and I'm weeks away from turning 20. The city stimulates me, and I can hardly believe I've stayed in the same drudgery of my hometown for so long. I walk alone downtown, getting lost in the crowd of strangers, and revel in the multitude of opportunities presented in front of me. I walk everywhere, lost in thought and happy. Montreal feels like home, and I settle in quickly. At last, I don't feel quite out of place. Since moving in March, I've gone through three jobs, but nothing seems to fit. I'm also painfully aware that I need a steady paycheck if I want to leave next winter. Resolved, I head to my favorite neighborhood to hand out resumes door-to-door. -door. A week later, I get a call from a trendy dive bar where they serve cheap beers and sandwiches. 
The sandwiches are named after James Bond movies, and the TV above the bar, always on mute, plays the same titles on loop. The staff has no dress code, showing up for work, wearing whatever they want. Needless to say, it's love at first sight. I barely have any waitressing experience, but I'm desperate to get the job and lie my way through the interview. They hire me on the spot. A few hours into my first training day, I notice this guy walk into the bar. He's wearing a baseball cap with a visor flip upwards, black rimmed glasses, a white t-shirt with the sleeves rolled up, and tight black jeans. He's materialized out of my teenage wet dreams looking like a Johnny Knoxville doppelganger. I take note of his arms covered in tattoos while I will myself away from staring at him for too long. After greeting the staff, he leans over and introduces himself. Hey, I'm Sawyer. I'm a busboy here. He brandishes his hand for a shake as he flashes a smile and points to the girl leaning on the bar beside him. He introduces her as his girlfriend, Katie. Damn, I think. He's taken. We exchange pleasantries as I smile and then nervously look away. They leave after one pint, and I wave them both goodbye, happy at least to be making friends this quickly. During my first shift working with Sawyer, we keep running into each other. It's as if we're attached at the waist by an invisible elastic band, snapping us back together anytime we're too far apart. We mutually think the other person is awful at their job, unable to work the floor together. But maybe, just maybe, something larger is at play here. Something so deep in our subconscious, both of us are unwilling to acknowledge the attraction, but our bodies remember. Another life? What does love feel like when mixed with lifetimes of undoing? Lifetimes of obsession? What does it feel like to be unknowingly connected to another soul, doomed to relive the same story over and over again? Is this love at first sight? The next morning, I sit outside my apartment door stealing the neighbor's Wi-Fi as I stalk Sawyer on Facebook. I convince myself this is simple curiosity. No ulterior motives here. I discover he's in a reggae band with his best friend Kip, who also happens to work with us. Born in 74. I quickly calculate the difference and realize Sawyer is 14 years older than me, making him 33 going on 34. This only makes him hotter. I crush on his profile pictures, scrolling through them one by one. I know he's taken, but I add him as a friend anyway in hopes he adds me back. And later that night, he does just that. By September, my social life has exploded. The staff at the dive bar have become my new instant family, and I christen the summer of 2008 as the magical summer. Tonight is our end of summer staff party. Sawyer and I, along with all the other smokers, are loitering in the parking lot of the bowling alley on our first stop of the evening. The sun dips low on the horizon while Sawyer runs after me. He's trying to wrestle a cigarette out of my hand as I giggle loudly trying to get away. Suddenly, it hits me. Sawyer's flirting with me. Sawyer has a girlfriend, but he's flirting with me, and I'm loving it. Besides, it's all just an innocent game, right? Most importantly, I'm innocent, with a dash of knowing exactly what the fuck I'm doing. I already flirt with all the guys I work with anyway, most of them also in relationship themselves, so why would Sawyer be any different? A graze of the arm here, a lingering hand on the shoulder there. Am I really doing anything wrong? I guess I don't have to flirt back, but where's the fun in that? After bowling comes dinner, where I try to sober up over tapas and bottomless vodka sodas. Sawyer sits across from me at the table, and while others eat dessert, we play a game. We take turns twisting a thin skin on the inside of each other's forearm, determined to make the other one flinch. I take in the pain with a smile while I stare smugly into his brown eyes. This is flirting. This is sexual. Our last stop is Chez Serge, possibly the only bar in Montreal with a mechanical bowl. 
Last thing I remember is watching Sawyer jokingly dance on top of the bar alongside some of the other guys. He's wearing a button-down shirt with snaps instead of buttons. The checkered kind. The smoking hot kind. I smile as I look up at him and him down at me. I lean over the bar stools and rip his shirt wide open, uncovering a stomach tattoo that leaves me only wanting more. The sound of the snap, snap, snap of his shirt electrifies me, as the surprise in Sawyer's eyes makes my mouth water. The next day, I wake up with bluish welts all over my left arm. I smile, pleased with myself. The bruises are proof Sawyer likes me. It connects us both on an even deeper and intimate level. But yet, unconsciously, I've signaled to Sawyer that I can withstand pain and go to great length not to complain about it. I should have known we were doomed from the start. The city is now covered in ice and snow. My plane ticket to Thailand is bought, and the countdown has officially begun. I've had a few crushes here and there, including Kip, but nothing can distract me long enough from thinking about Sawyer. From obsessing over Sawyer. It's a naive schoolgirl kind of obsession, or that's how I like to call it. But it's so much more than that. I tell all my friends about him, and even go on and on about how lucky I'd be to find someone just like him. Sawyer and I have been texting for a while now. Always work-related, but it seems I always have a burning question, and Sawyer always has the answer. He's become my dreamboat template of what the perfect boyfriend should look like. A few weeks before Christmas, I message him on Facebook telling him just that. I'm parading my affection as innocent. I act like my love for Sawyer is unrequited, as if I hold no real power over the sanctity of his relationship with Katie. He's loyal to his girlfriend, period. Yes, Katie visits the bar, but not often and never for long. So I continue to play with fire and hope to burn myself in the process. I find excuses to stay after hours just to spend more time with him. We drink Jameson until the sun rises, sitting at the round tables in the back so the cops won't catch us. Sometimes we have chugging contests, generally because I tell the boys I can beat them. I never do win, but I always come close second or third. I then head home swooning from lust and cheap beer. If only I could have a piece of him before I leave, then my obsession would be satiated. I convince myself that my fantasies, which are countless now, are most likely better than reality. I have a history of this kind of obsession. Since my teens, I've latched onto one boy, typically unavailable, or even better, a stranger. I did this in high school, then continued the pattern in college. I would stare at them from afar, making them stare back. An eye game that fueled my infatuation till the next time we crossed paths on our way to class. I would never end up dating any of them. As soon as our interaction would materialize into more than just a fantasy, I would get uncomfortable and run away or avoid them. Then I would find someone else to obsess over. But those were all boys. Sawyer's a man. He's different. Therefore, my fixation is different. I lay in bed at night thinking of him. I replay my favorite fantasies, which typically entails Sawyer fucking me on the bar at work. I replay it in my mind until I fall asleep looking forward to my next shift with him. I can always count on our Thursday shifts together for my weekly dose of Sawyer. If it's a slow shift, I spend most of my time sitting near the sink staring at Sawyer while he washes dirty pints in pink soapy water. I love everything about him, from the punk rock tattoos on his arms to the way his name sounds on the tip of my tongue. What I love most about him, however, is his age. Sawyer had been shocked when he discovered I was 20 years old when we first met, and he still teases me about it months later. All of it makes me want Sawyer even more. Seducing him is the only thing I can think about. Perched on the bar, I ask him questions about life and explore his views on marriage and love. You know, typical small talk stuff. 
Sawyer smiles and answers every single one of my questions as I sit legs crossed studying him. He rarely asks me questions back, but I don't care. I can sense he enjoys the attention, and I am more than willing to give him all the attention he wants. And as the weeks go by and my departure date grows closer, both Sawyer and I slowly start to let our guards down. It's obvious now. Maybe not to others, but obvious to each other. Our mutual desire for one another is insatiable, and the buildup is intoxicating. Drunk with desire, and usually something else, I become careless. We're playing a dangerous game, a game that would consume us both for the next four years. We are days before Christmas, and I am set to leave in less than three weeks. I'm sitting at the bar after hours, and somehow Sawyer and I have been left with the keys of the place. We pour Guinness from the tap and share a bottle of Jameson with two of the bar's regulars. Business as usual. Sawyer is staring at me in between the taps while he pours us another round of beers. I can see it now, the sex in his eyes. I shoot him back a look only a girl in her early twenties can muster up, half drunk and full of thirst. I can see now how he looks at me, how he undresses me. I would kill for that feeling to last forever. His eyes on me, watching me. But then I blink and it's the morning after. My brain wakes up before my body does while my eyes are still glued shut by a Guinness-induced coma. My subconscious tugs at the end of my mind, eager to remind me how my night ended. I rise from the dead, gasping. (gasps) We kissed. I let out with a croak. It finally happened. But the memory of the kiss now blurry as I try to replay it in sequence in my head. I'm desperate to keep the moment intact, to preserve the feeling and make it real. Through the boozy haze, I recall Sawyer and I walking up the stairs to Miami, a grimy after hours known for, of all things, its ribs. Then I remember sitting across the table from one another. I grow bolder under the influence of whatever booze we've smuggled in and play footsies with Sawyer's crotch under the table. His loaded smile vaporizes me, and I disappear under his stare like a puff of smoke. The kiss. I relish the build-up towards our first kiss almost more than the kiss itself. The touch of his cold hands on my stomach as he slides him up under my winter jacket, pushing me against the building. I'm still young enough to feel like his touch, a man's touch, means everything and is everything. Still, a guilty pang slit through me thinking of his girlfriend. I reach for my phone and text Sawyer. Oh my god, I am so sorry. I act sheepish because after all, I am the one to blame. I'm the one who threw myself at him knowing our time together was coming to an end. A few minutes later, he texts back. Don't be sorry, my dear, he says. We made the decision together, and we're both better off for it. I exhale with a smile and roll into my pillow, sighing with relief and romance. I sit back up and reply, Okay, so please tell me this then. I'm not just this random girl. My phone vibrates in my hand seconds later. Naomi, I would have to write pages to explain what you are. We end our conversation with, I hate you a code we started a few weeks back. I had come up with the idea as a safe alternative to I love you, since those words were still out of reach and forbidden. Winter 2008, and I'm unknowingly months away from moving to Montreal. My best friend and college roommate Emma is having a house party. We're both graduated by then, and she now lives up the hill from school with a new roommate. Nothing about the party or that night is memorable, just a regular house party full of 19-year-olds playing drinking games. Emma's roommate has invited her circle of friends, people I casually know from school. It's refreshing, especially when I take a look around the room and realize I haven't hooked up with any of the guys here. 
Over the span of the night, I get closer to one of them. Let's call him Danny. It's getting late, most likely four in the morning. Some people have passed out, some people have left, and some, like me and Danny, are quietly chatting on the couch. The house has gone quiet when Danny looks at me sideways. Want to get out of here? I nod. He drives us to his place and I follow him up the stairs to his room. I suddenly feel awkward, wishing I had drunk one last beer before committing to our plan. Sex is fine. I even remember thinking it's better than most. But the bar has been set very low. The only thing I have to compare it with are two years of drunken one-night stands. The next morning, he buys us coffee and drives me home. I think, how nice of him to buy me coffee and even taking the time to drive me home. His common decency makes him a true gentleman. A real testament of the top-notch dudes I've been hooking up with. I can't remember if I kiss him when I thank him for the ride, but I do think about it the whole ride over. As I slam the door behind me and head towards the building, I've already come to a conclusion. I'm done having meaningless sex. It's all I know. 19 and I've never had a boyfriend. I don't even know what it feels like to fuck sober. Danny is my catalyst. Whatever the underlying reason, and there's many, I'm done. I haven't gone more than three months without having sex since I was 17. And this doesn't even include losing my virginity at 14 with yet another one-night stand. As I snuggle into bed, my small TV on a random channel to help me fall asleep, I promise myself that the next person I will have sex with, I'll love, and he will love me back, no matter how long the wait. A few days after New Year's Eve, Sawyer comes over before his shift at the bar. It's been a year since my self-imposed celibacy. We first waste time watching MTV's Pimp My Ride on the couch before locking ourselves in my room. I put on 808s and Heartbreak by Kanye West and sit next to him on my bed. He scoffs at the music as I unfurl my legs over his, my back to the wall. I ache for his attention and affection. He assures me he'll teach me what good music is one day as he leans over to kiss my lips. I've been robbed by my own abysmal memories, our first kiss now more like a sketch than a photograph in my head. I make sure to savor every touch and every kiss and sear them into my brain. Having sex with Sawyer feels so right that it alleviates my guilt of being called a homewrecker. It's also my first time having sex sober. Ever. I want to melt into his core and stay there forever. I have no fighting chance. I am Sawyer's slave, his disciple, and I am his ticket out of his own dreary existence. Yes, technically, he's still with his girlfriend, but I'm leaving in a week and nothing else matters. We let our bodies convey how much we mean to each other since no words matches the intensity I know we both feel inside. After sex, Sawyer holds me close to his chest as he reassures me one last time. He wouldn't have cheated on Katie if I wasn't leaving. He would never do that to her, but this is different. We're different. Deep down, I know I would have slept with Sawyer no matter what the situation. When he leaves that day, I run back to my room and fall into bed, Sawyer's cologne still lingering on my pillows as I breathe in deep. I'm hooked. When D-Day finally arrives, I sit on the edge of my bed alongside Sawyer as he hands me a tatered book from his bag. It's thin and compact with the corner of the cover page torn off with age an old copy of Kim by Rudyard Kipling. He'd found the book in a hostel when he visited Thailand a few years back and had kept it with him throughout his travels. He tells me to keep it while it's my turn to travel alone to Southeast Asia. I silently curse the universe and wonder why I met Sawyer only months before leaving the country. 
My intuition's pulling me towards the ocean, while another part of me is enamored by a false promise of true love. I cry in Sawyer's arms as we stand beside my sister's idling car. I love you, Sawyer whispers. Shocked, I hug Sawyer even harder. I can't believe he's finally said it. At last, someone loves me. I tell him I love him too and promise I'll come back for him. We kiss one last time, a kiss I never want to end. I watch him turn away and start down the street as I continue to cry. My heart aches, but my tears feel beautiful, poetic even, as I wave him a final goodbye. Our love is true love. I know this because he told me. I believe Sawyer with every part of me, even the parts of myself I hardly understand. Sawyer is my first love, and this he will always remain. Whether the love we share is in fact real, that I cannot say. But at this moment, between us both, it's real. Every single moment spent with Sawyer is a prayer answered, and I long for the day we can be real. Hours later, I wake up on a bench holding my purse tight to my chest and my backpack tucked between my legs. At least I have my pillow from home to rest my head upon. It's freezing in the Heathrow airport as I keep my winter jacket zipped up and my scarf wrapped around my face as I try to sleep. I open my eyes, look at the time, and cringe. It's only hour three of a 14-hour layover heading to Bangkok Airport. I'm in a state of limbo. I wander the airport corridors thinking of Sawyer, still feverish from his last words spoken to me. I love you. I listen to 808 and Heartbreak, only to be reminded of us locked inside my room weeks earlier. Memories of the coldest winter, when we kissed on icy sidewalks, drunk on Guinness and lust. As I sit, waiting for my flight to finally board, I fish out his book, tracing the fragile corners with my fingers. I open it, turning the page carefully, and only then do I discover Sawyer left me a note inside. I swallow my heart back down into my chest as I reel from all the romance. I memorize his note, his words heavy with wisdom, as he implores me to wander the earth and explore as much as I can. After all, he writes, we are all children of the earth. I sit stunned. How could these past few months be so life-changing? When nothing has happened to me before this. At last, I think, I'm free. I'm inside the dream I've so carefully planned. Fate is pushing me forward, thrusting me into a world full of love and full of light. Or so I think. In reality, I've split myself in half when the plane left the tarmac in Montreal. I'm running and running fast, unaware that the vast expanse of darkness I'm running from exists within me, an abyss I will unknowingly descend into for years to come. Okay, so... What the hell is going on? Am I right? <laughs> so this is just the uh, tip of the iceberg um, of a very long and, if I want to be dramatic, tragic love story uh, that was definitely not meant to be, <laughs> however I thought it was. Um, however, it's, it's a, there's a duality within the story uh, because it's also a love story of me um, discovering the ocean. And that's a love that has endured ever since. So there was a, there was a divide between, um, like I said, at the end, I split myself in half, you know, 
that was a feeling that that I felt for a very long time. I wanted to start this by saying uh, I'm going to be mentioning some really like hard transits, but I don't want to scare everyone or scare anyone to think that if you are going through the same transit or if you will be going through the same transit, that your life is going to be similar to what happened to me. I also believe that your transits mirror how your life is currently. And my life was all kinds of fucked up. You know what I mean? So it just enhanced all of those feelings. So uh, yes, those transits are typically hard, but I think they were, they were, they were sort of um, kicked up a notch in my situation because I was very uh, let's say traumatized and I didn't know. So that's the entire fucking plot of this story is that I had no idea I was real fucked up. Okay. So the beginning of the story spans from March, 2007 to January, 2009. So it's about a year and a half. So I want to backtrack to, um, to a date that was just before uh, me being in the kitchen, being like, I need to get the fuck out of here, okay? So March 20th, two, 2007. So that was about a few months before me deciding to get the hell out of Dodge, okay? If you look at the chart for that day, the sun is in Pisces at 29 degrees, which I thought was an interesting uh, um, fact because I find that 29 degree is typically a, um, it's a critical point. It uh, definitely, it sort of uh, builds up energy until it moves into the new sign, I find. There's, uh, you know, the, the best uh, example of this, of, of, a, of a 29 degree that we experienced not too long ago, was Mars and Aries at 29 degrees when QAnon stormed the capital. So there's a sense of, it's not always fated events, but there's a, there's a turning point, I find. So that's why we call it critical point. So that's not what was really fascinating about this chart is that um, I was going through a um, Uranus. So the transiting Uranus, which was in Pisces. Okay, so everything I'm going to be mentioning is in Pisces. So I think that's why I thought the sun in Pisces at 29 degrees was interesting. Uh, Uranus was conjunct my north node at, at the exact degree, okay? So at 15 degrees Pisces on March 20th, 2007, Uranus conjunct my North Node. This is a once in a lifetime transit. It does not happen to everyone and it does not happen twice, okay? Because Uranus takes a long while to move along the, the your chart, okay? Just like Pluto and Neptune and those, you know, generational planets. Um... So not only was Uranus conjunct my north node, but the transiting north node was exact my, my natal north node. So the transiting north node was at 15 degrees Pisces, exact my north node, on the same day that Uranus was conjunct my north node in 15 degrees Pisces. So do you not see this like so for me this already explains a very fated event because when you get your nodal return it's it there's choices sometimes that you make that are are almost destined i find 
there's a lot of uh, the nodes are very much involved. I find in these in in the astrology I'm going to be talking about. I mean, I I'm also very uh, a person that takes notice of the nodes a lot more. But um, n- so not only was I going through my nodal return um, at 19, which uh, typically is still it's it's a it's a it's an event, okay. But Uranus was like, hey, I'm involved and I'm also conjunct your North Node. So do you want to get the fuck out of here? Um, so that was, that was March 20, 20th, 2007. Seven days later, my grandmother dies. And a week after that, my uncle from the same side of the family nearly dies of the flesh eating disease. Okay, so um, and this, by the way, I might add, is all happening in my sixth house. Okay, which means... That my south node and the transiting south node is in the 12th house, okay? So during that time, unexpected events, okay? Um, I mean, my grandmother dying, it was like, it, it was, we saw it coming. But my uncle almost dying from the flesh-eating disease a week later, that was fucked up. And so that whole period of time, I spent time, most of my time in hospitals or like like end of life care facilities, which is a 12th house thing. 12th house is associated to hospitals. So my South Node was transiting that whole house while all of this was happening. And then my sixth house had all the Uranus conjunct shit going on. Okay. So my sixth and 12th house were really lit up during that time. Um, so it's not surprising that a few months later four months later I was like I need to change my entire life I need to change my day-to-day I am done with this fucking routine I am bored to death I literally need to escape okay so I booked my escape while Uranus and the north node were still transiting my sixth house um notable Uranus mention is that actually moved into my sixth house March 11th 2003 so a couple of years earlier than that and starting from when Uranus moved into my sixth house I started moving I moved that spring and then I proceeded to move every year or less till I was 19 and onwards so I like I am sort of again blown away by the fact that Uranus when it was transiting my sixth house was like yo let's shake things up Let's move you from place to place, you know, no stability. That's not what we're, we're going for, okay? Um, what I also thought was really interesting is March 27th, the day I moved to Montreal with my sister, was my grandmother's one-year anniversaries. Uh, it was my grandmother's one-year anniversary of her death, which was not planned, but I thought that was you know, fairly an interesting note, you know, and that day the sun was in Aries and the moon was in Sagittarius. So it was like, you know, independence and like, let's fucking move onwards and upwards. Um, Mercury, Venus. So the day I left March 27th, 2008 to Montreal, not only was sun in, in Aries, you know, let's fucking do things moon and sag but mercury venus and uranus was now a tight conjunction in the in pisces in the sixth house so my sixth house was just super activated by that time like um my my day-to-day was about to change drastically and um 
and yeah, it it was like on fire, literally. Sun in Aries, moon in Sag, you know, onwards and upwards. Um, July 9th, 2008. <laughs> so I I did a lot of sleuthing. I did a lot of Facebook posts looking for all of these dates. So you're welcome. Very cancer season of me of doing all of this. July 9th, 2008, I met Sawyer and I started working at that bar that we met at, uh, which will be left nameless, but uh, some of you know exactly what bar I'm talking about. Anyway, um, so when I met him, the uh, my se- so this transiting south node, uh, which was now in Leo, was conjunct my natal sun and Mercury. Okay, so south node, things from the past, past lives, you name it. If you've had some, if you've followed me for a while now, you know that I'm very much uh, into the fact that I believe in past lives. And um, my ex was definitely someone that I think were we were connected from past lives and not in a good way. Uh, so for the South Node to be conjunct my natal sun and Mercury, not surprised, you know. Now Pluto was just about to move into my fourth house. So it was still in my third house in Sagittarius in a, at 29 degrees. So once again, a critical point for Pluto, my boy Pluto. Pluto, who's a lot more about transformation and death and rebirth and obsession and, and all of the things that were very, very closely tied to Sawyer. Um, you know, the moon, so that day, July 9th, the moon was in Libra, conjunct my ascendant. The sun in Cancer conjunct my MC. So it felt like, you know, starting working at that bar was, I always, I've always said it was this like life-changing moment. If I hadn't worked at that place, I wouldn't have met Sawyer. I wouldn't have met half of all of my friends. I wouldn't have had Montreal open up like it has opened up. Um, it was a very life-changing moment. And so for it to be, for the, the moon to be on my ascendant, the sun to be on my MC, it felt like, yeah, uh, I like, it. I felt like I was being reborn, to be honest. It was like all, all of a sudden I felt like I was being seen I was getting the attention of boys, which never happened before, especially in my hometown. I was never the person that was flirted with. And now all of a sudden, I was like this like cool chick that worked at this bar and flirted with her fucking like um, douchey fucking co-workers. Oh my God. I have so many other stories about that place. <laughs> like, <laughs> Anyway, uh, I might talk about it in another episode because this one's going to be fairly long I find um so we all we've all so we've all concluded that by December 2008 my obsession with this person grows exponentially exponentially um and um so I'm keeping the good for the last but Uranus transiting being conjunct my north node was like a whole thing that that was a one once in a lifetime transit that I was like holy shit I need to talk about this but um Interestingly, by that time, Saturn, the lord of time and karma, was transiting over my south node, okay? Very much attached to past lives and karma in the 12th house, okay? So Saturn, the lord of time and karma, transiting my 12th house, karma, 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 okay? This just explains even more 
why I feel like that time period of my life were was meant to be. It, there was so many karmic events. It's just unreal. I find it unreal. And maybe that's why I have a hard time letting go. And not letting go of this person, but letting go of how fucking crazy that period of time of my life was. Like in the most tragic, beautiful, every, everything. It was, it was wild. It was wild. Okay? So now Pluto... Another once-in-a-lifetime transit moves over to my fourth house and is now at zero degrees Capricorn, okay? And it will continue to teeter between 29 degrees Sag to zero degrees Cap Capricorn till well over a year later. So Pluto's really playing with this, this ending here, this beginning and ending of 29 degrees Sagittarius in my third house and zero degrees uh, Capricorn in the fourth house, which... Pluto has been in my fourth house since then, okay? And I've felt the influence. So, the most, the, 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 the date that really made me want to talk about all the astrology was January 12th, 2009. The day I left for Thailand, okay? So, the day that Sawyer told me he loves me and I'm leaving and I find it so fucking poetic and whatever. Um... Interesting to note, both big dates where I move or leave somewhere. So the first was when I moved to Montreal. It was on my grandmother's uh, death anniversary. So interestingly, January 12th, 2009 was also my grandfather's one year death anniversary. So I had lost two grandparents over that uh, period of time. Who, uh, also a cute little note, was also a Leo. So I thought that was interesting. So if you look at the if you look at the chart of this date, um, the moon is in Leo, conjunct my sun in Leo. The nodes are still conjunct and opposite my sun, right? So one node is conjunct my uh, the south node is in Leo is conjunct my my uh, sun, and then uh, the north node is in Aquarius is opposite my sun. But surprise, surprise. What other transit was happening while Pluto was playing with these degrees, okay? Zero degree Capricorn, then a little bit one degree Capricorn later in the year. Surprise, surprise. I'm officially going through. Okay, let me explain my chart real quick, okay? I have Venus at one degree Cancer. I have moon, so, uh, and I have, I have moon in Cancer at two degrees, okay? And I have Chiron at four degrees, okay? If you, if you consider aspects, okay? So when a planet talks to each other, if you consider aspects, we talk about 10 degrees orb, okay? When we talk about exact degrees, it means that, uh, you know, it's on the same degree. So Venus and Pluto would be at one degree Cancer. That would be an exact uh, aspect, but you consider aspects to be, you have a little bit of leeway. So this means, okay, that Pluto, 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 okay, let me repeat it, Pluto fucking toe is opposite both thrice my Venus in Cancer, my Moon in Cancer, and Chiron in Cancer, okay? This is a once-in-the-lifetime transit, and if I'm correct, actually doesn't even fucking uh, 
happen to everyone because Pluto takes so fucking long to move around, okay? So if you have your moon in Cancer and in any degree, actually, because we're almost done Pluto transiting Capricorn, you've also experienced a Pluto opposite Venus or Cancer or whatever. If you have a planet opposite um, Pluto like that, okay? If you have a planet in, in fucking Cancer you've most likely experienced uh, Pluto opposite that planet. Um, so <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, plus, Lil- plus Lilith is conjunct, exactly conjunct Pluto, which was I thought was really interesting because I don't know much about Lilith, but I know that it, it, it speaks about dark sexuality. And so I was like, hey, let me get real obsessed and real obsessive and real compulsive and you're gonna see in the next few episodes my obsession and my compulsion take up like fucking it's it's it gets kind of unreal and I'm happy to see this aspect or this uh this transit happening because it explains a lot about why I was so compulsively might I say sexual (laughs) Okay. And also my moon and Chiron, like all of the fucking, I find that all those three planets, like, can I catch a break? There was this undoing this relationship and, and the, and what happens is this opposition because Pluto takes so long, basically lasted my entire relationship with this person. So our entire relationship was influenced by a very plutonic uh, uh, obsession and death and, and, and destruction and, and compulsion and manipulation. And it's pretty wild. And needless to say, uh, after this relationship, I was definitely an entirely different person. Um, definitely an entirely different person. Oh, and then this is all the same day. Okay. January 12th. Then I mention, then I, I noticed that Neptune, my boy Neptune, was in Aquarius back then and is opposite, is and is exactly opposite to the exact degree, once again, all exact fucking aspects, um, to my natal Mercury, which I thought was doubly interesting because Neptune definitely clouded my judgment tenfold. Like, I was in this other world, right? This illusion of what this relationship could be. And I was really unwilling to actually see what was actually in front of me. And Neptune was like, we love everyone. You know what I mean? So I was like, oh, of course, that was an influence. And then um, a transit that I wasn't quite sure how to interpret and then I looked it up was the North Node was then also squaring at this point, squaring my natal Pluto, okay? And I looked it up and I thought that was really interesting that what I I read, the first thing I read was uncomfortable with exerting your will and power directly. So you may seek underhanded or manipulated ways to carry forth what you believe to be your ultimate goals, aka sleeping with Sawyer. Um, Your instincts surrounding the path you were meant to take may be clouded by insecurities. So I thought that was really interesting too because at the end, if you remember, I'm I'm saying 
my intuition is telling me you have to go to Thailand. Thailand is where you need to be. But then there's this whole thing in Montreal concerning this guy that's way too old for me and way too involved with someone else for me that is like pushing me to fuck all my plans and stay there. But so I'm, I'm, I'm ripped in half. So it's like my intuition is completely muddled. Uh, and I can't think clearly. Neptune opposite natal Mercury. So yeah, that's it for now. I think uh, there's enough here to, to digest. I really hope that you've enjoyed and you'll come on this journey with me further on. Um, and episode two just gets even more interesting. So I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.